Welcome everyone to Monday Match Analysis. I'm Gil Gross. Today's episode is a conversation with sportscaster Ian Eagle. He calls the French Open every year for Tennis Channel, used to call the U.S. Open for CBS. Now he calls the NFL, the NBA, college basketball for CBS, as well as Westwood One Radio. And he's also the voice of the Brooklyn Nets for the Yes Network. It's fair to say Ian is one of the best sports broadcasters in the world, and he's been around the sport of tennis for his entire life. So I don't want to give away too much of our conversation. All I'll say is that uh, Ian's got a knack for being funny. I think I was able to get some good stories out of him. He had me dying of laughter on a few occasions. So without further ado, Ian Eagle. We're joined for the first time by Ian Eagle. Tennis fans know him because he calls the French Open every year for Tennis Channel. Sports fans know him for a million other reasons. He does college <laughs> basketball and the NFL on CBS and Westwood One. He's also the voice of the Brooklyn Nets for the Yes Network. And just when you think that's a long enough resume, Ian, you just won your fifth straight New York Emmy for sports play-by-play. Coming home with some, I don't know if it's hardware in the age of COVID-19, but congratulations for that. And my first appearance on Monday Match Analysis, most importantly, Gil. So right. now, now I've gotten to where I need to be in my yeah, career. Yeah, this has to rank pretty high, right? It does. It does. <laughs> it's great to be with you, man. No, thank you so much for, for coming on. I'm, I'm really excited. This would normally be a, a pretty busy time of year for you, right? NBA playoff time. Uh, the Nets were were holding on to a seven seed, yep. so I mean, this you'd be full speed ahead right now. I would, and for a long stretch of this, I did try to imagine where I would be on any given day, and then I've realized that that's a kind of a lost exercise. So I've stopped doing that. But you're right; this would be NBA playoff time, whether it would be a net series or some other series for the NBA on TNT, I definitely would have been in the thick of things, uh, running around and enjoying the NBA playoffs. What happens moving forward, what form they might be able to resume in remains to be seen, but uh, this definitely is the time of year where I'm bouncing all over the place normally. I, I apologize for, for reminding you of that <laughs> and taking you out of your, your zen. We're good. But so after that, NBA playoffs, and then it's French Open prep. That's next. Yeah, it's funny how my year works, Gil, because I've gotten used to this the last 15 years, basically, of my broadcast year ending with the French Open. So I go hard in September, October, November, December, obviously into January, February, and March and beyond. But once I hit the French Open, that's normally the the end for me. And that usually means when I'm on that flight back to the U.S., that's some time off to shut my brain down and just shut it off completely. I, I've gotten better about that over the last, let's say, five years. Prior to that, I was taking some assignments in the summer and saying yes to things. And finally, I realized I needed a little bit more balance. But the French Open, in so many ways, is uh, the cherry on top of my broadcast year, going to Paris, working that event, working with the people that I work with at Tennis Channel, and then also knowing that when I'm done, I really am done, at least for a long stretch. 
Yeah, well, it's a great event to end with, especially for someone like you. I understand that you started a young Iron Eagle. I mean, tennis was your sport. That was your thing. Yeah, it was my thing. I grew up in Forest Hills. And uh, for those who don't know, I'm sure they already do. Anyone that's following along with you, Gil, is aware yeah, of the they're history. All, they're all nerds. Yeah, they know. They know Westside Tennis Club. They know the U.S. <laughs> Open. And I moved there in 1977. So I lived in a neighboring town called Rigo Park. And it was just one town over. We moved into Forest Hills. And I ended up living one block away from Westside Tennis Club. And I had an interest in tennis. I was a fan. I eventually became a player. I was a ball boy. And I was a member at Westside Tennis Club. I told my dad when I was 13 years old that I was interested in joining, thinking that he would take me over there and make it all happen. Uh, he said, all right, well, if you want to join, go over there and find out how to join and do it yourself. And it, it actually was good advice because I did. I went over to Westside Tennis Club. I went to the front desk. I asked how I could become a member. They explained that there were junior memberships. My dad had no interest in joining. So I joined as a junior member and uh, I ended up playing tennis there basically uh, over the summer on a daily basis. But even during the winter months when they would put up the big bubble, I, I was there every single day for some years. It became such a a big part of my life, the grass courts, the red clay courts, the hard true right. the stadium was still there. Uh, so if you were a tennis geek, it was like this perfect panacea uh, of so many different uh, tennis philosophies, learning to play on red clay, learning how to play on, on grass courts and uh, just balancing the life of, of being a part of that whole scene, uh, it taught me a lot, taught me a lot beyond tennis, taught me a lot in general about life. Absolutely. Well, well, this is pretty big time because this is two U.S. Open ball boys on, on one podcast. And <laughs> people, right. don't, people don't always get this. Let's compare and contrast our experiences as U.S. Open ball boys, okay? Did you ever humiliate yourself on the court? I was not humiliated by anything that I did intentionally. Uh, there was a player, though, that took me to task. <laughs> and it, it still lives with me today. The, the player's name was Jimmy Connors. Oh, You're very no. familiar oh, with the great Jimmy Connors. Uh, I was working a match of his. This was in Forest Hills. So this was not the U.S. Open. This was... Tournament of Champions. I was 13 years old, maybe 14 at the time. I was a back ball boy. And how graphic can we get uh, on this discussion? Say whatever you'd like. Okay. All right. Well, let's just uh, say it like it is then. I'm not going to say everything exactly okay. how it went, but I'll, I'll come close. Basically, you know this, Gil, there are six balls in play for ball boys. The server gets two, and then if you're a back ball boy, you want two for yourself and two for your partner because you don't know if there's a let, which direction the player is going to look towards. Absolutely. So in my training, this is back in the 80s, the term was called balancing the balls. You would balance the balls, two and two. Don't need to overanalyze it. That's mm -hmm. what it was called. 
So Connors is losing a match against uh, Vetus Gerolitis, as I recall. Good match. Yes, excellent match. And he's down. And he's getting agitated. So I'm back ball boy to the right. He's a lefty. He asks me for two balls to serve. I bounce on the two, but I realize now that I still have three balls in my possession. So before he even gets into his service motion, I take one of the balls and I bounce it to my partner. And Connors whips his head towards me. He goes, what are you doing? You're told, do not talk to the players. So I say nothing. I'm stoic. I do not answer. He now comes closer to me and with an expletive, he says, what the F are you doing? So now at this point, he's asked me twice. I said, I'm balancing the balls. Uh, What? I said, I'm balancing the balls. Now, little did I know, he was not familiar with that term, the ball boy vernacular. (laughs) He laces into me and is actually screaming at me. The people, the fans behind me now are screaming back at Jimmy. Hey, leave the kid alone. Enough, Jimmy. He gestures to them and he finally snaps out of it and serves, wins the service game, breaks Gerolitis, wins the second set, wins the third set. And to this day, I believe that I was the impetus. I triggered Connors to go on this incredible rally center court that's how i remember it. <laughs> a, a young a young ball boy named ian eagle <laughs> lit a fire under jimmy connors yeah that i mean i i don't even want to tell my story after that it's almost <laughs> it would almost be embarrassing but uh first shift i lost my shoe fell right off not good no not good. and i didn't want play to halt so i just i went back into my corner i was also a back and i put it next to me and the player's about to serve and the chair, the chair umpire is looking at me and she goes, uh, stop, please put your shoe on. <laughs> so it, it was a mess. And then I also hit the chair with a throw. But um, that happened. I, I saw that quite a bit. I would yeah. often, you know, you would try to work it with your partner. I would often request the other side because of that recurring nightmare. Yep. But I did have to work that side at times. And you found yourself going over and compensating maybe too much. One other story that I just remembered, uh, there was a player by the name of Van Winitsky that was playing on an outdoor court, outside court in Forest Hills. And he was down. He might have been playing Eric Fromm. So I'm going way back. I'm going mid-80s, early to mid-80s. And Winitsky was a local kid. Not a kid at that point, but a local kid. He asked for the first ball, give it to him on a bounce because he's serving. He asks for the second ball, but as he asks for the second ball, somebody from the stands screams something to him. I don't know if it was someone he knew, but there seemed to be a familiarity. So he looks up in the stands and the second ball catches him in his private area. And he- Yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it's right. (laughs) 
and he recoils on contact <laughs> as the ball hits him <laughs> right in the gonads. So that was my first year. Similar to your shoe, I nearly lost my job in the first year because I thought Van Winitsky was going to complain about me. But uh, it all worked out. He lost the match. It's funny. I told John McEnroe that story one year. I was working with him, and we had some downtime. And <laughs> he starts cracking up at the story. And I thought it was a funny story. He's laughing. He finally stops laughing, and he turns. He goes, I hated Van Winitsky. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Those were good. So it comes full circle because you turn the page on, on ball boying. You, you never get to be a ball man, right? No. No, you never graduate the ball, man. That, because that's kind of sad. <laughs> there are many out there. I mean, there are, not, and I don't, mean, I don't want to besmirch. Okay. But that was never, never a goal. Really, what happened for me at the U.S. Open, I got offered more money to be a linen boy. And I, I took the job, and it was the most disgusting job that I ever had in my life. The positive to the job was the shift was from six o'clock at night to midnight. So I had the pass and I could just walk the grounds all day yeah. and nobody would bother me. I could go to any match. I could get anywhere because this pass was all access. Part of it was I had to go to the restaurants and collect the linen from each restaurant. So the napkins, the tablecloths, then I had to take the linen, separate into separate colors, count the linen, and hand it to the cleaners at the end of the night. And look, this, this is not pretty, Gil. Yeah. I'm just gonna come out and say it. Go ahead. There would be, there would be chewed up steak Ooh. in the linen. Like this is what I was dealing with. And I quickly realized on day two or three that being a ball boy was much better, but this was double the pay. So I took the gig, I yeah. went for the money, and my ball boy career came to an end. Right, and, and you paid for it because- Oh, well, I paid for it. I right. saw things that I should never have seen. Don't become a linen boy. But anyway. Oh, great, <laughs> great words. <laughs> it comes full circle because uh, starting in 2005, uh, you get to call your first U.S. Open. So it's, it's not in Forest Hills anymore. We're, we're in Flushing now at the Billie Jean King Tennis Center. Uh, but, but how did that happen? How did you start calling tennis? Yeah, so I had been at CBS since 1998. And the coordinating producer for tennis was Bob Monsbach, longtime producer for CBS Sports. He worked literally 35 U.S. Opens in some capacity. I think he produced maybe the last 30 that CBS had. That's how long he had been there. And he was a tennis guy from the West Coast, loved the sport, is still working now with Tennis Channel, and I still get to work with him at the French Open. So he had asked me at uh, one of our – basketball seminars, I believe, that we had, college basketball, during just some downtime, he said, uh, do you do tennis? I said, well, yeah, I do tennis, absolutely. I did not do tennis, but of course I'm going to answer that. He said, all right, well, we may, we may need you. I said, great. And that was it. That was the whole conversation. It was, it was a 15-second conversation, and he moved on, I moved on. And lo and behold, I got a call that early summer that there was going to be an opening. 
the, the first part of the job that I got, it was a late night show, you might recall that CBS had after Letterman, and Rich Eisen was the host. And Rich ended up at the NFL Network where he is today. Mm-hmm. And because of the dates, the Thursday game to open up the NFL would happen smack in the middle of the second week of the U.S. Open. So Rich was doing this late night show, but the NFL required him to be at the Thursday night game to open up the NFL season. So they needed me to come in and host the late night show with Patrick McEnroe. So I took the gig. Obviously, I said, yeah, I'd love to be a part of it. And the first night that I'm assigned to do it is the night that Andre Agassi and James Blake are playing in a classic quarterfinal match. So the studio show is not paint by numbers, but there was a pretty set format. First segment, highlights. Second segment, some analysis. They would have musical guests on the late night show. And on this particular night, Hootie and the Blowfish were the musical guests. So I go into the studio, I'm preparing for the show. It's a studio show. We are underneath the stadium and you're not watching any tennis other than what's on the monitor. USA had the coverage at night. They had the primetime coverage. So Ted Robinson and John McEnroe have the call. Mm-hmm. Hootie and the Blowfish perform for us. We tape it. They play a song called One Love, which actually had nothing to do with tennis, but makes some sense that they would play it for a U.S. Open late night show. Yeah. I sit there. I watch them do their set. They're great. They decide to hang after they do it because the Agassi-Blake match is interesting. And Hootie and the Blowfish are huge football fans. And their fantasy football draft is coming up in two days. And they now are asking me my opinion on what direction they should go in with their fantasy football picks. They're at, would you take Clinton Portis in the first round? I'm like, uh, yes. <laughs> Hootie? Yes. So fast forward. This match is a marathon. A marathon. And the producer tells me, hey, Ian, there's a chance this match may go over. And if it crashes into our window, you're going to call the match with Patrick McEnroe. I said, well, what about Ted Robinson and John McEnroe? I said, yeah, they'll stay on for their West Coast audience, but everyone in the East Coast and the Midwest will get your call. I said, we're going to call it from here, the table, in the studio with a lavalier microphone? They said, yeah. Okay. And Gil, that's exactly what happened. This thing went deep into the night. I had not called a match up until that point. This is my first night working tennis for CBS. And guess what? At 12.30 on the button, we come on the air for the final set of Blake and Agassi. So if you go back and try to find highlights of that match, you'll find Ted Robinson and John McEnroe calling the majority of it. And then at some point, it will shift over to me and Patrick McEnroe picking up the action in the fifth set. And it was awesome. It was awesome. But I'm calling it off a monitor that is not right here, but 10 feet away, large monitor. 
lavalier microphone, IFB, and that was it. And that was my indoctrination into uh, big time tennis. Uh, first men's match that I ever called in my life was that moment. Wow. Um, that's, that's quite the, quite the debut, quite the debut, but you know, you, you end up getting into a rhythm. They, they obviously liked your work because they, they brought you back to do many more U S opens at CBS until, until the company ultimately lost the rights, but you did get to spend a lot of time in the booth with, with John McEnroe, as you mentioned. And if, if there's one thing that everyone knows about John McEnroe, it's that he follows zero rules (laughs) <laughs> just has no regard. He does whatever he wants. I mean, that is abundantly clear. So I imagine you have one or two pretty good John McEnroe stories. Yeah, the, the crazy part, Gil, of the way that things were set up. Uh, I am a rule follower by nature. So if there's a production meeting at 10 a.m., I'm there at 9.45 a.m. And the way that things worked I don't think I worked with John that year. I I think it was the following year, I believe, if I remember correctly. And there was rain that had wreaked havoc with the schedule. So I end up over at Grandstand. Look, there are assignments that are on a sheet. And this is true for the French Open as well. But this is something I learned very quickly about tennis. Just because that's the assignment on your sheet doesn't mean that's the match you're going to call. If something else interesting is happening on the grounds, you have to be ready. You could get tossed to any match at any time. And that's not in my normal thought process as a broadcaster. As a broadcaster uh, that's been doing this for a long time, my MO is, okay, tell me my assignment. I will put all of my time and energy into preparing for that assignment to be ready. Tennis is different. You get curveballs thrown to you all the time. So in this particular case, uh, Bob Monsbach, who I mentioned earlier, is talking in my ear. I'm at a different location. He said, hey, I need you to get over to Grandstand. Robbie Ginepri, they just moved that match over there. Okay. So I run over to Grandstand, put the headset on. I'm alone in the booth. He says, hey, I'm sending McEnroe over there to call this match with you. That's terrifying. Yeah. And I, well... Here's the thing. First, I said, there's a talk back button. I said, Patrick? He said, no, John. I'm like, oh. <laughs> I believe it was Ginepri Nalbandian, but I would have to go back and, and check it. You, you would be much better with the details than I would. But that's, I, I seem to remember that. Ginepri, David Nalbandian, possibly. So I realized in that moment, I'm not going to tell the producer this, I've never met John, other than being a ball boy. I've never officially met him because he doesn't come to production meetings. If the production meeting for the show is 10 a.m., that's not something John would be participate in. He will show up for his match. So I'm in the booth. Two minutes now. Bob tells me, two minutes. I look around. <laughs> no joke. This is normally where you'd be getting to know your analyst. A little bit. Yeah. Bob pops back in my headset. One minute, I said, Bob, uh, Monzi, I said, John's not here. He said, he'll be there. (laughs) Okay. 45 seconds. Waiting. I turn around. Who comes wishing through the door but John McEnroe. He's got a Knicks hat on sideways. 
He's got a collared white shirt with a tie, but loosened. And he's now putting his stuff away. I turn, I stand up, I extend my hand. I said, hey, John, I and Eagle. He goes, yeah, I know who you are. He shakes my hand, puts his stuff away. They said, 20 seconds. I said, you good to go? He goes, yeah, I'm good to go. <laughs> okay. Put the headset on and away we go. And Gil, it was like we had been working together for 20 years. He was that good and that easy. And within the first 10 minutes of the broadcast, at one point, he said, I do the Brooklyn Nets games. At the time, it was the New Jersey Nets. And he said, he just brings up out of nowhere, he goes, uh, how are the Nets going to be this year? This was on the air. <laughs> and Bob Monsbach, the producer, goes, nobody cares about this. John cared. So that's all that mattered. So we talked about the Nets for a little bit. We came back with a shot of, of Shea Stadium at one point. He asked about the Mets. John plays by his own rules, and he was all over it. He crushed it. Uh, it, was, uh, it was a clinic in many ways. Yeah. I mean, you guys are a couple of New Yorkers. No reason why you would nope. need to talk beforehand. I mean, the chemistry <laughs> should just be there by nature of, of that, right? hundred percent. And yeah. in all sincerity, it did teach me a lesson. I had already known this, but the reality is you've got a problem solve in this job. So if you overanalyze things and if you have too much time to worry, I had no time to think about it, to ponder it. It just happened. And guess what? It worked out. It worked out because I was prepared for the event that I was calling, even though I did not expect to call it. I, I certainly had done enough homework and I knew John and I knew John's tendencies enough. I wasn't going to make this an interview. And, and that's, you know, that's a big part of it too. I, I think there's some uh, rudimentary thought process that goes into this. Well, I'll just keep lobbing questions his way. No, that's not, that's not how it works. Uh, he doesn't want to just answer questions. You've got to find discussion points. You've got to lead him in the right direction. You've got to play off it and volley, so to speak. And uh, tennis-wise, it, it was really important for me because it prepared me for my assignments in the future of, hey, don't overanalyze this. Don't pretend like you're an expert. Be a good teammate and find some common ground with your analyst, especially in a sport like tennis. Tennis players, they come from an individual mentality. That's all they know. So when you're trying to team up with them, like a doubles partner, it's important to read their cues. Most tennis players were not part of a big team. They didn't play softball, baseball, basketball. Some did. Football. They weren't coming from it. Uh, on a team perspective. So they think of it as an individual. So you've got to really make an effort to get on the same plane with them. And I find tennis analysts in particular to be exceptionally bright and very analytical. They know what they're talking about. They have honest assessments of what they see based on their personal knowledge. Uh, that, that has always stood out to me, and I've learned it even more working with so many now through the years. 
I mean, tennis is so different from, from the other sports that you call, right? Because you're not yelling about Tyreek Hill running down the sideline or a Kyrie Irving crossover. In fact, if you're saying anything during the point, people are, might have some problems. So, I mean, in your opinion, what makes a great tennis commentator? Well, from a play-by-play man standpoint, I think you're really good if you're not being noticed, but you're blending in. Mm-hmm. You're giving pertinent information. You're raising your level when necessary. You know, that, that to me is still important. You still have to be connected with the event that you're calling. If I'm just calling out scores, that's not going to get it done. They can see the score. Can you put a period on things? And that's ultimately for minimalist play-by-play, what's being asked of you. I've done some golf as well. You know, very similar to the, the story that I told you about the U.S. Open, my first assignment, basically, big-time assignment for tennis. Same thing happened in golf. I had never been to a golf event in my life, and the first thing that I called was the Masters. CBS hired me to do Amen Corner Live, which was a new project that they were working in conjunction with DirecTV and CBSSports.com to have dedicated whole coverage at Augusta. I had never been to a golf tournament. And again, got parachuted into this and learned the ropes and figured it out. Telling a story is still the theme. Right. In a football game, in a basketball game, in a tennis match, in a golf tournament, tell the story. Can you humanize the participants? And then do you have the ability to take the viewer or listener from point A to point B to point C. And tennis is no different. You know, I think I had to make some adjustments because I certainly bring a lot of energy to a Tyree Kill highlight or a Kyrie Irving highlight. But I, I think they hired me partly because of that, that I can harness that energy and use it in a spot that's called for it. As long as it's authentic, as long as it's coming from the right place, uh, then the viewers will be comfortable with it. If it's contrived, if it's manipulated, usually people can sniff that out. But uh, with tennis, stay out of the way. Set up your analyst. They're really sharp. They know their stuff. And because they come from the world of thinking the sport, they often can articulate it. It's a thinking man sport. The strategy involved in tennis is so wrapped up in the mental part, not just the physical part. Uh, You know better than me, Gil. There's no coach. They have to figure it out. They've got to problem solve in the moment. So what I find with former tennis players that become analysts, they've lived it, truly lived it. Look, Former football players, of course, they have insight, but they have insight often from their position. And if they were a student of the game, maybe they can see the broader picture. A tennis player has lived every aspect. As you said, there's no coach. There's no one chirping in their ear during the match. They've got to figure it out. They don't get to go to the sideline in a timeout and chat with their coach about what the next strategy piece of strategy should be so they've thought it through and their analysis is often spot on yeah 
Well, I'm glad we got into that. I think people will, will enjoy hearing about that. Let's take it off the court for a moment because, you know, you go to a place like Paris, you're at the French Open. It's known for its very crazy, you know, some, you know, fancy over the top food and, mm. and your diet is not <laughs> really famous for like, I don't think you're, you're eating snails, Ian, but it's just a guess. Uh, your guess would be correct. I am not. I am not. I'm not the most adventurous of eaters. So uh, if you're asking me, what do I do on a daily basis in Paris to nourish myself and replenish? It's an adventure. <laughs> Every day is an adventure. I, I do Americanize it a lot. I will try to find something that will at least get me through the day. And in recent years, I found five guys on the Champs. Oh, wow. They know me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I'm not doing a Popeye. I, I own real estate in that area. Uh, that's, uh, that was a big addition for me, trust me. Yeah. Big addition. Well, then you're not going out to eat with uh, Tennis Channel's very own uh, Steve Weissman, who is a massive snails connoisseur. Which, uh, connoisseur. Yeah. No, I have eaten with Steve uh, in Paris. In fact, we went to an Italian restaurant. I can get by in an Italian restaurant. There you go. That's not a problem. You want to go pasta? <laughs> I'm good. You want to make me a piece of chicken? I'll figure it out. But yeah, once we get a, get a little deeper... That's where the problems pop up, Gil. Yeah. Well, well, let's end here. I'm, I'm good friends with uh, your son, Noah, who yes. is a uh, voice, the uh, radio voice of the Los Angeles Clippers. I want to know when, when, when you play Noah, when, when you guys take the court and this is, this is a one-on-one -on -one battle for the, you know, for a lot of bragging rights and pride, who wins? In tennis, we're talking in tennis, about in tennis. tennis? Here's what I would say about that. If we took the court today, today, although we would not be allowed, but if we did, Noah would beat me based on his current athletic ability. I'm gonna give that up. Okay. But here's the caveat. Noah at his best against me at my best when I actually played and was actually good it's not close. Right. I dominate. I dominate. Yeah. Uh, the confidence that, that, you're, that you delivered with that, I mean, it has, if it doesn't have everyone convinced, then I don't know what you can possibly do. Gail, I'm being real. You, know, you, <laughs> ask, you ask your guests to be real. I'm being real. I'm keeping yeah. it real. Uh, well, I appreciate that. And um, this has been so much, so much fun. I cannot believe that you made Jimmy Connors yell at you and then win the title. I mean, it's un unbelievable. So thank you so much for coming on, Ian. I don't know if he won the title that year, oh, okay. but he did beat Garolitis in that match. Okay. The title, I'm not sure. I also, I did a men's final there. I did a doubles final with uh, Kevin Curran. I don't know if you recall Kevin. Kevin was a South African player, excellent player. And I believe his doubles partner was uh, John Denton, if I remember correctly. And 
I came very close in that match to getting hit in my private parts. Mm. That sticks with me. The ball just missed that area, but left an imprint on my right thigh that the other ball boys were marveling over at the end of the match. What was it Cable was that strong? Yeah. Well, would you have? But at least it wasn't the age of of Twitter, which which are still not on. But you know, <laughs> you know, Sports well, Center. Yeah. No, and, I. It, it would have been rough. I yeah, am on yeah. Twitter, by the way, Gil. A burn. It's just not a public account. It's a burner account. <laughs> okay <laughs> thanks for for uh clarifying yeah. that where, where where can we find you in that burner account can you retweet this when i tweet it out maybe <laughs> thanks i um stay great safe seeing you soon. all the best bud great seeing you stay safe before shopify were you wondering where are my sales at now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you mean cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.